This is the Rolling Nothing podcast for the 23rd of July, 2019. We're in the middle of the summer, and I'm joined here as always by my co-host, Dave. Hey, Dave. Hello, Jon. How's summer treating you? How the devil are you? <sighs> well, unlike most people, I didn't have a vacation this year, so I guess I'm bad. Well, okay then. Well, as this comes to you, I will be on vacation. <laughs> yeah, just such the is the power the of pre-recording. <laughs> we never pre-record. We, we plan ahead. That's, that's different. Okay. Yeah, I think I choose the same. But okay. Um, no, no, no. It's all about how you how you show things, how you how you talk about things. Packaging is everything. But it's a news episode. Okay. So speaking of packaging being everything, I'd like to package up some news about our Patreons. <laughs> uh, see how seamless that was? Wow. Um, our Patreon count has doubled uh, recently. <laughs> so thanks to uh, to our Patreons. If you're interested in becoming a patron of the Royal Elephant Podcast, then uh, you know everything that you do helps go towards running the podcast, and we really do appreciate it. Similarly, uh, we are on YouTube, and we are marching onwards towards our journey to 100 subscribers. So again, if you are uh, listening to us on YouTube, please do hit the subscribe um, Please also you know, hit the notification bell if you want to hear about new episodes as they come out. Um, it's just audio at the moment. We are looking into um, doing full video once I actually have uh, some bandwidth that would allow me to do such a thing. But um, right now we have audio episodes there so you can catch up on all the latest and greatest episodes of the Roaring Elephant podcast on YouTube. Yeah, and that's also the reason we're asking for subscriptions on YouTube because doing video material does mean extra work and extra investments on our part, both time, money, equipment and everything. So we do want to make sure that we have at least uh, a, a, a reasonable amount of people that are actually interested in YouTube content. And that's basically why we're doing this little drive for uh, YouTube subscribers, just to make sure that there is going to be somebody consuming that because again it is um yeah extra effort from our end and time is limited indeed indeed so if you want us to proceed grow and improve ourselves subscribe on youtube and uh, yeah, take a look at the patient page absolutely there are benefits anyway yes, so with, benefits. with that <laughs> with that let's let's talk about Eight ways your company can support and sustain open source. Should we first talk about why you should? <laughs> well, I think hopefully through the eight ways, then okay. it will be all be, will become clear. But I mean, no, it's it's a fair point. Why, why the code's out there for free? Why bother? Why bother supporting it? Why not just consume it? Mm-hmm. Um, my view would be that. Uh, having worked for you know, many open source companies over the years, um, you know, the only reason that a lot of this open source exists is because there is uh, a larger organisation behind it, mm-hmm. you know, that's providing a lot of the driving force. You know, the the whole idea about these projects kind of um, coming out of nowhere, being just sort of one person, you know, in their sort of uh, spare time creating software that's then used by everybody the world over um, is definitely still true in in certain kind of limited cases. But in the majority of cases, when we're talking about software that is, you know, consumed at large scale by enterprises, usually there's there's one or more commercial organizations that are, um, you know, shepherding 
and contributing heavily into the development of those projects. Yeah, and it's all about the sustainability of the whole open source environment. I mean, uh, a uh, let's call it small podcast like ours, we can rely on Patreons and donations to keep us afloat. But when you have things like the Apache Web Browser, Nginx, uh, Kubernetes, um, what, what, all those big things, you can't rely on donations. You need to have a, a sustainable uh, environment set up. And yeah, that does mean... Uh, companies should support open source uh, initiatives yeah i mean the, i think the the point you make around sustainability is also if you think about how organizations uh, are consuming it uh, you know there's there's absolutely no onus on any organization to you know pay for any form of services or support like that on them that it's it's entirely up to them whether they choose to do that but if you're consuming something and ju- literally just consuming it um as as a, you know someone i spoke to called them relatively unhappily about it but called themselves lazy consumers of open source because that that is what they're they're doing at the moment that's not their goal that's not what they want to do that's just the the way things are at the moment in their current phase of their business but you know they they truly recognize that because they their business relies on this you know a very a variety of different open source technologies that they're consuming that they need to feed back into that in some way shape or form to make sure that you know if those projects died because mm-hmm. people kind of moved away from them their business would die and that's it's you're you're not doing it for purely selfless reasons. In many cases, you're doing them for the most selfish reasons as all, to continue making money as an organization. Yeah, yeah. it doesn't have to be all altruistic. Altruism is good, and if you do, hey, more power to you. But it's just an yes. economical fact that you do become dependent of those yeah, free sources of intelligence, that's called in more general terms. But you have to make sure that they persist, that they sustain, that they are still there tomorrow, or you'll be in trouble. Yeah. No, I don't want to do any so doom and that, gloom. But uh, yeah, let's yeah, go. Yeah, with that, I think this this, this article is quite nice in the way that it does give uh, a number of different ways that organisations can kind of provide some of that contribution. So mm-hmm. you know, perhaps we'll we'll run through a few of them and and sort of talk about them yeah. a little bit. But the the first one here is you know to hire open source maintainers to work on open source. Um, sounds really simple, but you know, the this I think is actually one of the one of the most um, powerful and important in this in this list because mm-hmm. this is this is really continuing to foster the the innovation within a, a particular open source project that you care about, and this to me is is putting you know, more of your money where your mouth is, if you like, or more of your um, your investment into these kind of projects, and also it's it's very much a way for an organisation to not just contribute to it, but actually or contribute to these projects, but actually um, establish some sort of voice within that open source community. You know, if you have a number of um, people, you know, if actively contributing to a project, then you immediately have more say than someone who's just kind of you know, submitting a, a pull request or filing a, a bug or whatever it might an issue against a, a project, you know, you have a certain amount of ability to to steer a project if you're an active contributor and committer to that project. Now, that doesn't mean that you can just go off in your own direction and develop your own stuff. That's not what community is about. But it does mean that you 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 know you can develop over time 
um, you know, a voice within that community for your organization. Yeah, most of these open source things are meritocracies. They're not democracies. If you do a lot of work, you will have a bigger say, definitely. And I think for me, the, the main point why people or organizations should hire open source maintainers is bragging rights. Uh, this is a very competitive environment. Everything that has to do with open source and technology. You want to get good people, you have to have a good reputation. Having a, a well-known open source developer in your ranks, it will lead to more good hires because these kind of people, they group together in a good way. Yeah. And also, I don't think anybody's saying here that you should just hire 50 developers that do only open source and don't do anything for your own bottom line. Even through indirect, of course, adding to the open source thing will add to your bottom line, hopefully. Yeah. But people will do more than just one thing. I mean, I'm, I would be astounded if the, I don't know, main developer of Enter Your Open Source Project here is only doing that 48 hours a day. Yeah. 24 hours a day <laughs> it's just having giving people space and time to do that and i'm also not talking about the uh, there's a rule there 2080 rule or something like that like you have one half day a week where you can do some open source stuff no that's not good enough it needs to be more convincing than that you have to be able to give yeah. guy, your main thing is this but also make sure that our stuff keeps running <laughs> yeah indeed indeed so. um so there's a another kind of interesting one here is um, funding or participating in open source internships or retreats. Now the the most probably well known of of these is the Google Summer of Code um, uh, that uh, you know project that anybody can can submit to become part of, and Google obviously heavily sponsors this. And there's a um, you know, a number of ways that organisations can get involved, but there's there's nothing that would stop anyone from starting up a similar, mm-hmm. um, you know, a similar program to work on open source projects that you would you know help to help to further and help to go forward. I think it's it's a it's a great way to get more people into open source and to you know yeah show your philanthropic philanthropic something yeah. like that uh, nature towards open source and uh, you know care towards that particular community yeah or, or start your own uh, internship program if uh, yeah. that's what you want to do because uh, I, I have been told that uh, the Google Summer of Code is the, the biggest recruitment drive that Google does every year oh yeah <laughs> And if if you're if you're looking to secure some of those you know high profile or um, high demand uh, open source recruits, then what better way to get them uh, than as interns you know develop and foster that loyalty, introduce them to your company through through these kind of pro- programs? You know, it, it can be very positive for for both sides of the uh, of the organisation. It gives you a great insight on what a person can do. Because doing an interview yeah. doesn't tell you anything about the programming skills of a certain person or his insights or his abstract thinking level. Having him do some work, see the result, and see how he works with the rest of the team, the group, the the project members, it's valuable insights. Yep. Uh, any other you want to talk about? Because you, we I think over there's, a bunch there. there's one other here that I think is particularly interesting. I and mean, there are lots of there's lots here that are interesting, but I think there's there's kind of one more here that I think is worth worthy of discussion, and that's actually supporting and uh, joining open source foundations. 
um, which is kind of interesting. After sort of a couple of episodes ago, we were talking about foundations, mm-hmm. but uh, you know, there's the Apache. They, they mentioned in this article the Apache Foundation, the Eclipse Foundation, the uh, Cloud Native Computing Foundation, the GraphQL Foundation, Let's Encrypt, the Linux Foundation, the Open Source Initiative, the OpenStack Foundation, the Node.js Foundation, and more. So you know, if if there's a a particular st- or a particular set of technologies that are concentrated in one of these foundations that your organization makes heavy use of, then again, you know, why not, um, you know, put a stake in the ground and, and publicly support those organizations? Now, in in many cases, that can be in the form of, you know, sponsoring one of their major conferences at a certain level, which gets you, you know, a certain number of benefits, like being able to, to speak during the tracks and, uh, you know, have your, your company's name and logo splashed up in a variety of different locations and all that kind of stuff, which, again, recruiting, you know, top-level talent in, in open source is... Uh, you know, I think is one of the things that a lot of organizations struggle with. And I think becoming a part of these kind of foundations and showing that your organization is is committed and interested and excited even about open source, I think is, is a, a particularly... Um, yeah, a particularly nice way to to kind of uh, continue that uh, that focus and show that development. Yeah, and it's also the one way that non-developing companies, if you're not making any software, if you're not programming, if you don't have any developers on your payroll, then this is one way you can still easily support open source without having committers on the payroll or yeah. submitting patches or uh, um, doing requests and stuff. Yeah. I think there's there is actually one more here. Uh, sorry, there is one more that I that I don't see in this list, which is okay. uh, which is actually the I guess the most traditional way of of uh, of supporting and sustaining open source, which is you know in many cases we talked earlier about there's often you know one or more vendors that are heavily pushing or the the steering certain open source projects, and most of those vendors have an open source. Uh, you know, a support solution for their open source stack. And of course, you can usually pay for some level of support for that particular stack. Um, I'm kind of surprised that I don't see that here. Uh, but, you know, that's that's probably um, in terms of being something that's the easiest for an organization to justify. I would see that, I'd say that as being the, the smoothest and clearest. You know, you get a clear... Um, you know, deliverable or set of services from your from your money, whereas a lot of these are a lot more uh, intangible potentially. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely, definitely. If you are using it and it is making you money, and your 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 business is becoming dependent on the correct functioning of that thing. It's an insurance policy, if nothing else, to have some kind of support in place there, and uh, yeah, go with the, the open source supporting organization there and give them some money for that. Makes sense. Indeed. Indeed. But there's also another one I'm missing here, which is something that everybody can do. You don't have to be a CEO or a CFO of any company for that. And actually, it's a, it's a two-parter. And that's uh, both mean the same thing, actually. It's uh, be an evangelist. Talk about open source. Talk yep. about the fact that open source works. If you hear somebody say, yeah, open source is not safe. Uh, all the code is out there that can't be saved. It's, uh, nobody's using it. That's not true. That's factually not true. It's you can point people. Look, look here. All these companies, big companies, small companies, they're using it. It is secure, or at least as secure as commercial software could be. Just make sure that people are educated. Because you'd be. I, I'm always surprised at the amount of people that 
aren't in the know that are still in the oh if it doesn't cost a million bucks it can't be any good uh, mindset so i think that's a, i think that's an interesting one i'd i'd like to uh, to to hold you there because oh. i think we can actually do another i think we could probably do an, an entire episode on how individuals can support and sustain open source because i think there's a whole plethora of different ways that individuals themselves can can actually get involved without even necessarily touching a single line of code. So hold that thought. I I had like 20 minutes of things to talk about and you're cutting me off like this? Absolutely. Stay tuned for another episode. Okay. (laughs) Then I'll I'll add something else. And there's one thing on the list that I don't like. Mm -hmm. And that's not because it's bad per se, but because in my opinion, in my experience, it usually isn't a good thing. And that's the start an open source office, uh, sorry, open source program office. And in my experience, a lot of companies, oh God, open source is popular and our people want to do open source, but I don't really want to do it. Let's start an open source program office and have people talk about it. And that's that's done then. So more often than not, those things are a, uh, I don't know what you call it, a band-aid on a problem that they don't really want to deal with. So sometimes it works, sometimes it's good. And in essence, mm-hmm. it could be a definitely good thing. But I've seen quite often that this is just being used as a, yeah, we do open source. We've got these, this guy in the corner there somewhere. He's the open source uh, program <laughs> officer. Just talk to him. And he's the guy that gets sent yeah. to the Red Hat uh, conference and sends a little booth and has to fake things. <laughs> Not saying who I, <laughs> where my experience that coming from here. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's been a while, but I, I definitely know that that also happens from time to time. So the open source program office, I think, is the least... Uh, attractive one on the list here just want to get it out of there since i wasn't able to talk about positive stuff i'll talk about negative stuff too much see what you made me do (laughs) i did i did and i apologize but but to make it up for you how about you tell me the difference between apples and oranges uh no no you're not supposed to compare those never compare apples and oranges that's a bad thing right you can't compare apples you should tell me why well, because we (laughs) apparently always do it and we can't not do it and every time you buy an apple that's what you do but anyway, <laughs> uh, this is typical of Dave looking at an article I chose, looking at a picture, and that's what he remembers from it. But the t- title of the article is actually why a data scientist is not an apple. Uh, sorry, is not a data engineer. Or an orange. Uh, or an orange. Well, maybe. <laughs> Depends on <laughs> whatever. No, actually, it's an article on O'Reilly's website. And I've been talking about this before, about the difference between data scientist and data engineer. Data engineer being a relatively new uh, role, let's say. This is actually for the, I would say, first time, a rather lengthy article that actually goes into a couple of preconceptions and details and explains things about this contradiction between the two and i actually thought it was a very good read and that's why i wanted to share to everybody which i have now done and i'm not gonna yeah read through the whole article because uh, links in the show notes and you can do it yourselves but one of the things that i picked up in here was a statement where he said that quite often data scientists won't contradict it when you tell them that they can do data engineering stuff, while a data engineer will never say he's a data scientist. Right. That's an interesting one, because it also means that in recruiting, a lot of people make big mistakes. Because when you want to go into machine learning, deep learning, advanced analytics, let's call it that, everybody thinks they need to hire a bunch of data scientists. 
And what the article, it gives you a couple of numbers here, but numbers are always subjective, so I'm not going to repeat them. But the ratio between the amount of data scientists and data engineers you should have in your company should not be one-to-one. You should have more data engineers and data scientists. And that's very normal because the data engineers are the guys that actually build the stuff, the production stuff, the, the brickwork, the layer work. The, they, they make this thing practical. While the data scientist is the very intelligent person that thinks about the concepts and devises new things, which he then hands off to the data engineer. I'm not saying that in any kind of derogatory way, but the data engineer, a data scientist is not supposed to be the guy that makes it practical. He makes the proof of concept. He makes the idea, demonstrates it works, that there's value to be had from there. And then people with more knowledge of setting up data flows and data streams and data sources and doing all of that, tedious high availability stuff and making sure the thing keeps on running that's not the data scientist's uh, thing that's the data engineer's thing and it's uh, he gives an example in the article where yeah the hr person thought he did a good thing by hiring a very good data scientist and data scientist comes in the first day and hr person says okay uh, that machine learning thing we want to have that on our website please make it so when the data scientist says that's not what i do what do you mean <laughs> Exactly. He doesn't do that. That's not what a data scientist does. No, a lot of data scientists do stuff like this. And that's where data scientists become very expensive. Not because they pay you have to pay them a lot of money, but because you pay them a lot of money, having them do stuff they shouldn't be doing. Other people can do that stuff. Relatively relatively low value. Yeah. I think is the the kind of the key point there. If but it's like it's like a lot of these situations. If you don't hire people to do the job that their skills best match, not to do anything and everything in a grab bag of vaguely related tasks, all you end up with is a series of you know highly paid and uh, you know generally underutilized for the sort of the things they should be doing. But they might be overutilized in terms of you know. Are they busy all day long? Yes, absolutely. But are they spending their time doing, you know, significantly lower value tasks of, you know, building initial data pipelines and working out how to grab data from various different source systems in the first place and how to make that stuff reliable and you know yeah. all that kind of side of things. And not only that, but also, but but doing the the the, the lower things badly because they don't have the background yeah. to do them well. <laughs> yeah. So you're losing yeah. twice there. Yeah. And there's a there's a nice kind of um, sort of pair of bell curves mm-hmm. uh, further down in the article where sort of data engineering ability you know, ranked from low to high and sort of there's a, a, a bell curve for a data scientist because they, they will absolutely have a certain amount of data engineering ability because you need to understand at least at the very least how to consume data from a, a you know a pipeline yeah. that someone's established and you know a maybe a little scientist. bit on. Yeah, yeah, and and sort of be able to, you know, you need to know what to do with that data when you get it. But then, you know, once once you've got that, you're then on to your proper sort of your data science workload. But you can see that there's a sort of the the bell curve in terms of which is I'm sure I'm assuming is number of people. Uh, they don't actually have yep. an axis for the uh, the y axis, yes, but I'm assuming it's number of people. Yep. Exactly. Um, yeah, and then you know the obviously you've got a you know a hump. Early on, which is the the sort of the peak of the data scientists' number of people at a relatively 
you know, you know, low to medium level of skill, and then you know the number of people, number of data engineers that have that level of skill, that the peak is significantly further towards the uh, you know the high level of ability, which is of course exactly what you'd expect if you if you hire someone. You know, if you hire a you know a bricklayer and then you ask them to do carpentry, it's not you know I I wouldn't expect you'd get a terribly great uh, you know piece of uh, piece of woodwork completed at the end of it. I mean, sure, it'll be there, it'll be functional, are, but far from ideal. Maybe both of them <laughs> are in the construction <laughs> industry, but you know you you would like to get and similarly you wouldn't ask a carpenter to go and lay bricks. It's just like it's a different set of skills, and despite the fact that both both sort of things are within the construction industry it doesn't necessarily mean that those two sets of uh, you know sets of skills are interchangeable and for me it's just it's just the same thing with this the data engineering and the data science yes there's an overlap they're both in you know the 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 world of data but they they have very different skill sets very different sets of knowledge and yes there's some overlap there but it, it just like a lot of these things you know pick the right people for the right jobs yeah and actually, uh, just to finish off on this uh, graphic there and see how this would be great on YouTube. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, actually, he puts a little uh, caveat there that this is actually a uh, optimistical view because this is the, the, the skill required for a moderately complicated data pipeline. And he could define moderately complicated as read byte, process byte, save byte. And that's not moderately complicated. That's very, very easy, simple pipeline. Typically, that's a lot harder, and you have that little black bar a lot further to the right, uh, where the the bell curve for the data scientist becomes a lot lower than what it's uh, at here. Anyway, now the data scientists and the data engineers, I've been bashing a bit on the data scientists uh, so far, but the data engineers also don't get a free bill of health here because he also says that data engineers sometimes mislabel themselves as data scientists. And why? Well, because when a project is done and successful, the data scientist gets all the credit. Because, yeah, the data engineer, all you did was connect those things, right? He did all the hard work, which again is a total bad thing because it's a group, it's a team effort. You can't both being used optimally at the thing they are best at that's how you get the project to work successfully you hear yep. a lot about about 200 percent of all data science things fail i'm exaggerating specifically because every percentage number in there is wrong 200 <laughs> yeah. percent if you didn't if you don't realize that that's impossible uh but one of the reasons that those things fail is because you have the wrong people at the wrong at the, at the, at the, at the wrong places Conversely, when you do have a project that works, make sure that people get the credit for it, because that's also very important. Because if not, well, I mean, if the data scientist gets all the credit and all the money, I'm going to start pretending I'm a data scientist. That way I get all the credit too, right? Well, no, but it's something that happens. <laughs> I think the it's actually uh, quite interesting the, in the conclusions um he talks about doing a sort of root cause of analysis of, you know, if, if you have a project that's stalled or failed, you know, don't just look at it and blame the technology. Um, and also don't take, I mean, he uses the data science team's explanation, but I, I would, you know, go one step further. Don't take any single team's explanation as to why something's failed. You know, the regardless of who it is you're talking to, you know, you need to actually look at, you know, look at it from the, the the project management side of things. Look at it from each of the individual groups involved, 
And usually the, there's no one kind of reason why these, any of these projects fail. There's usually a, mm-hmm. you know, a, a, a number of different issues that you know, combine together that you know, delay, stall, or, or fail projects. There's, very rarely have I ever seen like there's just a single clear reason why something doesn't, isn't successful because most people can spot one clear indicator of that you know, something's wrong. What people have trouble spotting is a number of things that you know are happening simultaneously across the the lifeline of a project, uh, and you know together contribute into that project. You know, delaying or stalling or taking longer or failing. That's that's one of the kind of reasons that it's so difficult to um, to really tell what's going on with many projects is that it, it's not just this one sort of this one thing that people need to care about or fix. It's kind of usually multiple little paper cuts that combine together to cause these issues. Yeah, and don't just look at the team members, also look at the management, at uh, the, the, the decision makers, at the, the scrum masters, the product owners, if you want to use some ter- terminology from the agile world. Because yep. quite often expectation management at the start is also very skewed or even screwed up people think we'll put machine learning in and we'll solve everything possibly probably not unlikely <laughs> unlikely uh, one last thing I want to take from the article which was a little bit higher up is there's a subheading there where it says data engineering not equals spark and <laughs> I want to actually make that even broader than that because the, the the conclusion in that little bracket there is that a big data solution requires 10 to 30 different technologies all working together. And that's very true. Quite often people see a potential big data problem. Ah, we need Hive. Get Hive engineers. Yep. Oh, it's, it's to do with Python. We need Spark engineers. It's never that simple. The moment you're in a complex environment that has anything to do with not just big data and deep learning and machine learning, but any kind of bigger IT project, to be honest, there's going to be a slew of technologies and, and, and knowledges that you will need. Knowledges, is that a word? Well, it is now. Probably that you will not. need, and you will need to group that team together that way. So also, when you start hiring people, don't hire the Spark expert. Hire the person that you will think has the amalgam of things or at least a big part of what you'll need not just one skill in there so don't blind yourself by just staring at one technology or solution and that's not just for the consuming part i mean the number of times i've seen solution architects like myself give a presentation or trying to design an architecture and they start with a technology and not with a problem Always a, a warning bell, in my opinion. If if you get a vendor on, uh, 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 if, you, if you get somebody like me there, he start I start whiteboarding and I start telling you about all the great things that uh, I don't know uh, Python does. Uh, next, that's not that's how you end the discussion. It's not how you start the discussion. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> couldn't agree more. It's a nice article. It's one of the better ones I've read about this. So Jesse Anderson, who wrote this, he's a data engineer, creative engineer, and managing director of the Big Data Institute. I don't always mm-hmm. give a uh, byline this large, but I think the guy deserves it because it's a very, yeah. I think it's, I can say it's unbiased. Uh, he knows what he's talking about, and it's a good read for people that are thinking of entering this world and people who are looking at hiring people in this world because <laughs> it does yeah. give a good insight, I think. Yeah, I think so. And I think I mean I think it's good for anybody that's that has any interest in this particular space. There's there's a lot of 
Uh, there's a lot of good information here, and I, I don't think it's all it's all obvious. Um, it might nope. sound a little bit obvious from hearing us talking about it, but it's surprising how often I've seen organisations making exactly these kind of mistakes. Yeah. So I think it's it's really it, it's it's a great article, and yeah, I, and I it, thoroughly recommend. You get just it, the, so the right amount of little details and, and 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 uh, real life experiences in there that make the concepts. Oh yeah, that's what he means. Uh, it, yes. really, it, it, it really talks to me. Anyway, well, in that case, anything else from you? Uh, no, unless I want to plug our YouTube channel one more time. Why? Why plug our YouTube channel when I can do it for you? So much better because that's all the time we have for today. <laughs> you can support this podcast by becoming a Patreon. Every contribution helps. And as Jan just said, we are on YouTube. Please do like, subscribe, hit the notification bell, all that YouTube stuff. Again, we're on the march towards a hundred subscribers. So you know, please do take the time to just uh, you know go to YouTube www.youtube.com search for <laughs> Roaring Elephant Podcast when it comes up click on it hit subscribe and you've done your good deed for the day um, also you can go to www.roaringelephant.org for a link to our Patreon page and for more information about the podcast you can also follow us on Twitter using the at Hadoopcast tag and send your feedback to podcast at roaringelephant.org until then my name is Dave and my name is John and we look forward to talking to you next week Goodbye. See you then. Bye.